0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene. along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, as we continue our coverage in Scotland, of leaders greeting including Prince Charles uh, among the attendees here and he has been committed to this for ages is someone as well committed she is from Eastern Europe where climate change is incredibly important for those of you on Bloomberg Radio right now uh, Prince Charles speaking to those gathered in Glasgow, uh, Scotland uh, all sorts of symbolism there but right now our Francine Lacroix with the managing director of the International monetary fund.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. Yes, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Kristina Georgieva of the IMF. Thank you for joining us. I know the IMF has been instrumental in helping with climate finance and also giving aids in these public partnerships to make sure that we deal with sustainability. Are you confident that COP26 is not just a talk shop, but
2: that will achieve meaningful changes? I see three reasons to be confident. One, Finally, net zero by mid-century is embraced by a vast majority of countries, 135 and counting. Two, because this time more of the speeches are about what we can do, not what about you should do. And that taking responsibility matters. And three, keep your eyes on tomorrow, Finance Day. Just to give you the number. We are proud that uh, climate finance last year jumped by 50%, but jumping by the 50%, it is only $130 billion out of 49 trillion. This is one quarter of 1%. Tomorrow, I expect to see many of these trillions grabbing this opportunity to move to net zero as a chance to be profitable and green.
1: But at the same time, the U.S., I know there are initiatives with methane, but actually the president is not coming with new solutions. China is not here. We don't have any new solutions from China. And Brazil is you know, doing a U-turn, but actually we go back to what it
2: was like three, four years ago. Can we
1: really achieve it without more from
2: these countries? We need everybody on board. We need all hands on deck. And uh, we have to continue to pressure countries to come around. Uh, and actually, when we talk about what is worrisome, to me, the most worrisome is this decade. Yeah. Uh, if you look at where we are on the emission reduction by 2030, at the pledges we have today, nowhere close. Yeah. We, we are maybe one-third to two-thirds oh. close to the pledges that we need to get uh, our chance to keep temperature at below 2 degrees, and even better, 1.5. So more attention to this decade is uh, what is necessary in addition to bringing this uh, less uh, willing parties uh, on board.
1: What do you worry about in the world economy? So there's inflation. It's coming. We're not sure whether it's temporary or not. There's supply chain issues. If we don't have a smooth economy, this will turn back. Actually, it's back on climate change.
2: Uh, of course, if uh, if the economy starts rolling back, uh, this would be... Uh, uh, Tempering appetite for climate uh, investments uh, among any other uh, investments. So let's look at the economy. What is the problem? It is still that part of the world is emerging from the pandemic very strongly and another part is falling behind. This divergence uh, causes interruptions in supply chains. We expect, unfortunately, these interruptions to continue into mid-22, maybe even further. Uh, and they are putting pressures on prices. Uh, we are hopeful that these price pressures are going to be temporary. We also know that central banks have the tools to deal with them. But what if they're not transitory, these inflationary pressures? If if these pressures are there, uh, central banks are going to take action inevitably. Uh, We have seen already Canada doing some of it. In emerging markets where inflation is real and it is more systemic, uh, rates are going up in many places. The problem is that if you take interest rates up, the solution for some would be a problem for others, especially for uh, emerging markets with high levels of dollar denominated debt, for the corporates that are on the big mountain of debt. So preferably we should see tempering inflation. And how can we do that? Well, focus on reducing this divergence, vaccinate the world, vaccinate the world so we can see production everywhere stepping up.
1: We're, We're slow to that is it going to be stepped up significantly or otherwise if we're creating this two speed you know this two speed world but also within economies a, a two speed um, economy what does it mean for actually the future in terms of populism in terms of the policies put in place
2: it is going to be very problematic on many counts uh, for for decades the world was converging poorer countries were getting richer poorer people were getting uh, wealthier when that breaks and right now it ha- it has broken down uh, of course we risk more tension and affecting the social fabric in many many places remember 2019 what did we have protests in chile in paris all over the world if the uh, divergence continues uh, we are going to see more more unrest how can we overcome it well vaccinate of all people in all countries at least by the end of this year, 70% by mid-next year. Do we have the vaccines for that? Yes, we do. But we are not distributing them yet in a way that would make that difference. What
1: about tax? Do we need to change the taxing system to make sure, again, I mean, this is also the problem of climate change, is that you can have the best will in the world, but money needs to transfer from the richer countries to the less rich ones.
2: We do have to look at taxation that helps us to reduce inequalities within countries and across countries. We can do it without this turning into a major burden because even incremental change in more progressivity in taxation can fuel more money in the right place. We also can improve the quality of spending Make good use of the money you have in your hands.
1: And the IMF board said there wasn't conclusive evidence in wrongdoing, actually, with some of the allegations against you. Is there um, concern that actually the staff have turned against you? Do you worry about your credibility with the staff?
2: No. Let me first say that I'm very grateful to the membership. They gave me a chance to present my side of the story, and they, on that basis, uh, voted full confidence. And then we had great annual meetings with fantastic support for the agenda of the IMF. Uh, Of course, staff was uh, and continues to be concerned. uh, That is not a minor issue, whether we have full integrity of the work we do. Fortunately in the fund, yes, We have uh, high respect for the quality of our reports. I have engaged with the staff. We had two town hall meetings. I have answered many questions people have on their mind, and of course I will continue to do so.
1: Have any members said that they're concerned about what's happened?
2: of the, um, uh, on the on membership, the yeah, the membership. Well, at, at the at the membership in the end uh, the uh, the vote was very clear uh, one of support for me to continue to do the important uh, job we have in front of us including for the imf to play a critical role on climate because it is macro-critical. It affects macroeconomic and financial stability and climate action is our chance to create green jobs and green
1: growth. Kristina Georgieva, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, that was the MD of the IMF. With that, I'm going to send it back, John, to you in New York and, of course, we'll have plenty more from Glasgow throughout the day.
3: Francine, thank you. Looking forward to it. An important conversation there, Tom. A signature issue for the IMF Managing Director after the IMF manager's director reportedly, according to a report that we put out on October 8th, tempered some language around climate change for Brazil after Jair Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, objected to it. Tom. Yes. That's an ongoing conversation still.
0: Let's do this right now. It is COP26, our Francine Lacroix uh, in Scotland with Mr. Benioff. This is a guy out of an apartment who said the end of software and in doing that moved on to billions and with his wife Lynn to making all sorts of philanthropy. He has spoken with his money. In Scotland, Francine Lacroix.
1: He has spoken with his money, Tom. You're absolutely right, and I am delighted to be joined by Mark Benioff Uh, right after, you know, right before this. Actually, you were in a panel two hours on deforestation. uh, You've been pushing this for such a long time. Yeah. But do we need to do more on other things? Deforestation is good. It's only a drop in the ocean.
4: Well, it's one of the most important things we can do. You know, we have lost three trillion trees on our planet. We deforested from six trillion trees. We only have three trillion trees left. Every trillion trees sequesters 200 gigatons of carbon. We need that carbon storage. This is really important. So to see those world leaders make those commitments, I'm shocked actually. I am really shocked.
1: Okay, their pledges, how do you make sure that then they go out and actually count what's been done and are held accountable if they don't?
4: Well, this is a huge moment where world leaders and also philanthropists and CEOs all came together around reforestation. Every CEO, like me, we need to do three things. One, you've got to get, go net zero. Yep. So Salesforce is already a net zero company and fully renewable. Two, Cash. we need to plant a trillion trees. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's why we started 1T.org in January of 2020. But to see that amount of progress in 18 months, that I feel very inspired and energized today. And three, we need to energize an ecopreneur revolution. So there's all these cool entrepreneurs here yep. but they are ecology entrepreneurs so they're creating all these next generation innovations and that is very exciting to see these things happening I mean, here at COP26 talk, talk to me
1: about cash so you're what spending 100 million over 10 years are you increasing that
4: We we well we're doing a lot of different things but we did a we have a 300 million dollar tree fund okay. <laughs> which is all about accelerating 1t.org which is our trillion mm-hmm. tree entry mm-hmm. initiative that we created and it's exciting to see it now. It is so well aligned with what's happening here. I mean, it's beyond my expectations, honestly.
1: Can, can billionaires do more at oh, this point in this juncture? Absolutely. Like what?
4: But, well, I think, like I said, number one, everyone's got to go net zero. You've okay. got to go net zero. I've got to go net zero. Our companies have to go net zero. And until you go net zero, I don't have a lot of conversation with anyone because I want to make sure that they are net zero, not in 2030, not in 2040, not in 2050, right now. So Salesforce is already net zero. This is really important. And then two is we need that sequestration capability. We have emitted 100 gigatons of carbon since the first industrial revolution. Now we could sequester 200 gigatons of carbon through these trees. That is exciting.
1: Does it have to come from government? So I know you're saying companies need to be net zero. But yeah. if you don't have the push, if you don't have the regulation to mandate it, there, there's going to be people so falling through the cracks. I'm glad you said that because
4: <laughs> I am so impressed with uh, President Ursula von der Leyen and what she has done with the EU Green Deal in that she is basically charging companies yeah. who are not net zero for their carbon. So mm-hmm. companies, CEOs, like I'm, that's what I'm, I'm CEO. I have to make sure that if I'm going to go trade in Europe, that I'm net zero. Now, I already am. But think about all the companies that aren't yet. Those CEOs are all thinking about, how do I get to net zero right now? And that's exciting. So she, I mean, she's leading the world. I mean, Ursula is amazing. And to see her do that, I think she will transform how CEOs are thinking about carbon today.
1: Mark, I think part of your deal on Slack also had a green component, right, on bonds. Do you see that actually being more in your acquisitions going forward?
4: I really, you know, well, you're 100% right. To see financing instruments that are like green bonds and, you know, the idea that everybody needs to do everything they can to get to net zero. So we can do a green bond or we're we're regarded as a sustainable company because for years and years, we've been working to get to this point where we can say, hey, we are fully net zero and renewable as well. So, but we're still cutting emissions still and all of our suppliers now, they have to contractually commit that they're going to net zero. This is a lot of hard work for everyone. We're also building a sustainability cloud. We're doing a lot of things, building an entire ecosystem to help our customers get to net zero as well. Everyone is going to need a lot of help.
1: So how important is it that in M&A transactions, actually, there's always a green financing component?
4: I think it's important, but it's not as important as that number one. That is, until you're net zero, nothing's going to happen. And a company can come in and say, hey, I want to do a green bond, but hey, show us your carbon footprint.
1: Okay. In 20 seconds, what do you tell to, to, to you know fellow billionaires and chief executives watching? What do you want them to do November 2nd, 2021? Plant a 2021? tree. Only one?
4: Plant a tree. Hey, if everybody planted a tree, that would be amazing. If they just realized that how important the tree can be in creating a better planet. But no, number 1 is net zero go, to, go net zero. Yeah. That's and number 2 is planet tree and number 3 is let's get an ecopreneur revolution. You know, I'm from Silicon Valley, you know that. Yep. And this, you know, there's a lot of exciting companies, many of them here now, who are building <laughs> solutions and I think they're going to really help us to accelerate this uh, this world.
1: Mark, thank you so much as always it's energizing. Great to be with you. Mark Benihoff from be with you. Salesforce.
0: It's a demand-side shock. Demand is booming.
3: Yep, demand is good. Will that supply-side story and the higher cost with it, Tom, will it weigh on demand through next year? I think that's what we continue that's to the talk about. That's here. You've got to have physics. equity market, though, is running on demand, yeah. Tom, fueled I mean, by it.
0: John, you've got to take physics at Yale to get this done.
3: Okay, so we get to someone who's done that. Let's do that now with Anna Han, equity strategist at Wells Fargo Securities. Physics at Yale's. at Yale, Anna. Is that right? Physics and mathematics. There we go. Put us all to shame. Anna, let's talk about 4825 year end on the S&P 500. 4825 and then something closer to 4700 next year. Just frame the view at Wells with your buddy Chris Harvey for us.
5: Well, I think for this year and what's really given us confidence into our price target for the next two months, look at how 3Q earnings have been coming in. As much as all we hear about is supply chain issues, uh, labor costs going up, labor shortages, really, uh, what we're seeing is that margins have been growing overall for the S&P 500 companies. That's telling us that this earnings growth has been robust. And it's partly because, like you guys were talking about before, that demand has been rather inelastic. Demand has been booming. And it's helping us and our prospects going into year end. But like you said, now for next year, for 2022, we're going to see tapering start to finish probably around mid-year. Then you're starting to see rumors about that rate hike being priced in. And that's the kind of environment where we're shifting right. from this more mid-cycle to late cycle.
0: So, Anna, your SPX calls down 37500 ish You know, who knows? And maybe we'll overshoot to SPX 5000 which would be remarkable. On the way up. Adults are going to come to you and say, we must hedge this great bull market. And yet with this convexity, this acceleration, hedges become so expensive. Is that where we are now that you can't intelligently uh, hedge a great bull market?
5: Well, as the pace has been accelerating, what's been interesting is you look at the volatility markets and you're seeing that implied over realize is actually not too expensive right now. I think a lot of that's been brought down by the additional confidence in earnings growth and just sort of yeah. the better outlook and clarity we're getting. So, in fact, hedges, hmm. I don't think hedges are that expensive here. I think it's possible. You just got to pick your time. Right. Frame.
0: And this is, Lisa, this is absolutely critical and it's an indication that this is not cathartic. You're not getting the emotion as indicated by expensive hedges where you go, I can't take part.
6: And part of this is how do you bet against a market that seems by some, maybe would call a uh, Teflon-like in its appearance in terms of <laughs> rallying. Honestly, and I do wonder how much this hinges on this idea that there still is so much liquidity in the market based on where the Fed is in their policy, <clears throat> that even if they become a little more hawkish, if they start to uh, taper their bond purchases, you still have negative real yields of around negative 1% on the 10-year yield in the United States. How much is this driving everything at this point, regardless of fundamentals, regardless of what story you tell in the economic cycle
5: no lisa you're absolutely calling out that big elephant in the room even if we start tapering These purchases are massive. This is the most monetary liquidity we've had uh, in quite some time. And don't forget, we've had a lot of fiscal stimulus down the pipeline as well, perhaps more coming. So in that kind of environment, it's helping people and it's giving us that flexibility to spend and to uh, move markets around. I think that as that tightens, you know, tapering is just the beginning. And even yields, yields are still coming off very, very low, uh, low levels and credit while it's winding off tights it's still historically low. So all that context, it's a great point. I think that's a lot of the reason why I'm enjoying the sort of boost we're seeing now.
3: Anna, just give me a second. This could be one of the biggest contrarian indicators we've had in quite a while. Lisa, are you sounding a little bit bullish? No. Are you sure? I mean, I what is bullish? Tom, would you Some go there? Did it, start, did it start no. <laughs> to sound
6: like that, Tom? <laughs> what is in
0: kind of theory? What is bullish?
6: Well, what, thank what, you. What's going on? Honestly, Teflon is what the market has been doing. And I do wonder, John, to the point, how much is this just completely backed by the Fed? Don't bet against a oh, Fed that man. is still accommodating. I'm going to start th-
3: screaming. We got you there. We got you there. Uh, Please uh, you, do. John, you're just doing just this to get me going.
0: It was just... beautiful. <laughs> go on.
3: TK, the floor is yours. I...
0: I've heard this so many times, John. It is the conflation of well-intentioned macro analysis into the bid-ask of the market, and particularly of the stock market. And you got to combine that in with a careful Gina martin adams Han kind of analysis.
3: Just to confirm, Lisa is not bullish based on what Lisa just said. Are we done with that now, Lisa? That flirtation with I'm that not bullish view. or bearish, I'm
6: trying to look around corners that of have course, negative things there because Thank that's what clarifying. the corners are that are concerning.
3: Thank you for clarifying. And a final question, how big is the Fed's involvement in this equity market?
5: It is. No, it is undeniably large. And if anything, the Fed has made sure to communicate their stance because they know the impact on the equity market. And, you know, to Lisa's point, there is going to be one sector we're looking at in particular, the favorite tech that is going to be having a harder time if real yields start to take off. And I think real yields will start to move higher away from these negative territories. But,
0: Anna, they they haven't yet. That's a fact, right?
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's been interesting is as we are getting this consensus on tapering, you would expect real yields to really start picking up. They've been going a little bit the other way lately, and that's what's giving us pause. You know, talk about looking around the corner. That's a little point of the market that we're wondering, is this signaling something different to us? But I think you need to give it time. You know, we're looking on this day to day framework. We need to think in months and quarters ahead.
3: We're all looking around corners here. Anna, thank you. <laughs> Anna Han of Was Farco Securities. We appreciate it. Send our best to Chris Harvey as well.
0: Frances Donald joins us with Manual Life and she's written an important essay on all this talk about policy mistake. Let's fold it into the word transitory, a transitory policy mistake. When a central bank screws up, Francis, what do they do?
7: Well, it depends who they are, but traditionally they have pivoted back and I think this is what the market is expecting with those flattening curves is that we're going to see central bankers who maybe get a little bit too excited validating those front end moves and you see those longer ends start to move down. And this to me is really saying that the market and I think a lot of economists, including myself, see that in 2022 growth and inflation slows pretty heavily. And in that environment, central banks won't just want to pivot have to pivot back towards a more dovish language. Hopefully that means a curve receiving. <clears throat> the challenge is we got to traverse some challenging curve flatteners, some challenging types of economic environments before we see the whites in their eyes.
0: So the 20-year yield is now higher than the 30-year yield. It's an inverted yield in the 20s, 30s spread. I don't believe I've ever mentioned that on air before. Lisa mentions that daily, folks, but that's another, (laughs) another world. Francis, the Fed can control how far out the curve, and if they can only control so far out, why do they care what the farther out curve does?
7: Well, the 2030s to me is less of an economic single and more of a technical development that's happening there. But what you should be watching is that two-year versus the 30-year. No, the Fed cannot control that 30-year yield, but that 30-year yield still has a lot of information about where we're going. Long-term growth potential is embedded in the long end of that curve. And the story we're seeing now in that long end is that, no, despite what we believed would be game-changing fiscal stimulus, we haven't checked that box particularly in the last few weeks. Remember average inflation targeting? That was supposed to be a big deal, Tom. We were supposed to be in a regime change where the Fed let things run hot or the idea that COVID was going to produce massive productivity gains. Well, turns out we have not said a major labor shortage, which is not giving us a productivity game. In fact, the opposite. So what that long end is telling us is that the escape velocity game changing growth that we thought we were going to burst out of in the build-back better post-COVID regime, we aren't just not getting that. Probably getting the
3: opposite. Francis, you've got a fascinating forward look here. Let's sum it up. You're talking about growth slowing next year, inflation slowing next year, and the possibility that the Fed has to flip once and then flip again. I'm just wondering how that stacks up with your view on risk assets, equities more broadly. What's the outlook look like?
7: Well, when we're constructing asset allocation portfolios, what we see is a Fed that cannot hike in 2022. And actually, a lot of global central banks that are either going to have to pivot back to a more dovish stance or even reverse rate hikes in the next five years. So in that environment, yes, I'm happy to be adding back to cyclical trades. But until we get there, until I can add back to risk, I have to make sure that the central bankers are not going to commit more of a policy mistake going into 2022. I don't think that happens to Powell this week. He's still got half the FOMC who sees the 2022 rate hike, the data is still okay. Inflationary pressures are still hot. And dare we say getting more and more political, this is probably not the week. And that's why it gets a little bit choppier as we head into 2022. I think we're in that bad news is bad news phase. We have to get back to bad news is good news in order to see adding back to risk assets. That probably only happens in early 2022.
6: Francis, just to highlight your position, are you saying that bond markets are wrong and that equity markets, risk assets, are more right when it comes to the outlook going forward. (laughs)
7: No, I don't subscribe to a market being right or wrong. I think markets are telling us the right story, which is that right now central banks are too hawkish. But in the long term, there's still a huge amount of liquidity in the system. And if you're looking at five-year return forecasts, then being in fixed income just doesn't make the same amount of sense as being in equities, particularly broad ones. What we have to pay attention to, though, is what is the next move in the yield curve? And in order to get a reseapening, we have to see the policy pivot But policy pivots are impossible for me to forecast. I don't have a model that tells me what's going on in Powell's head. I definitely don't have a model that tells me who's going to be running the Fed in 2022. I mean, I'm looking at betting markets. I wasn't raised to do economics by looking at betting markets (laughs) to tell me who's going to be doing the Fed. So there's this huge amount of uncertainty as to the when we see a policy pivot. And of course, I might be wrong that we don't get one, in which case we're talking about a much more difficult outlook as that curve continues to steepen, and our inbox are full of all those yield curves, equal recessions types of stories. Francis,
6: you're not alone at looking at predicted pages to figure out whether Jay Powell will remain the chair of the Federal Reserve come next year. I do wonder, though, what a different Fed chair, uh, possibly Lael Brainard, would actually do to the potential stance of a Federal Reserve when governments generally want a
7: central bank that is dovish. You know, most of the time we would say, don't pay attention to who's running the Fed. focus on the data, except that right now the outlook for the Fed is very binary. Does the Fed focus on the inflation side, which, by the way, I don't think they're going to be very successful at taming, even if they do get hawkish, in which case we're talking about more curve flatteners in a shortened cycle. Or does the Fed say, you know what, that labor force participation rate, one of the most important data points out there right now, is still really suppressed, our job market is still dysfunctional in many ways, we have to allow the overheat and reconvince the market of average inflation targeting. Now, Lale Brainerd seems better more in that latter camp. And so when we're in this very stark binary type of outcome, then yes, who's running the Fed will matter more than it has historically.
0: Is this traditional economics? I mean, do they have a foundation to work on right now?
7: No, because, you know, we've talked about this for the last almost two years. We don't have a lot of economics that helps us deal with COVID. And yes, COVID is still a big issue. I don't have a model that tells me how long COVID zero policies are going to be ongoing in China. I don't have a model for who's going to be running the Fed. I actually don't have a lot of historical data that tells me how to deal with supply chain disruptions. A lot of our supply chain disruption forecasts are actually based on survey data or what economists call soft data. It makes us a little uncomfortable because it's based on opinions. So there's a lot of data out there that we're going to call known unknowns that create a really challenging 2022. I'm writing my 2022 forecast right now. And the title oh, of it is give Oh, please you know, give us a
0: forward look on that. Come on, we got to make some news I'll, this morning.
7: I'll, I'll tell you, my 2022 forecast is called the anti-forecast because for the first <laughs> time, I think it's really critical that we acknowledge just the extent of uncertainty in 2022. And I don't book a lot of interviews by saying we're not sure what's going to happen that's not a great way well, you're to get known for use. It. <laughs> but there is a really important moment here where we acknowledge uncertainty as a proper risk management tool and just how binary the central bank outlook is.
3: Francis, I love that. I'm Me looking too. forward to reading it. When does it come out?
7: Soon. I'm getting to work. Soon. Okay.
3: Okay. <laughs> Francis Donald of Mania Life.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.